Well, good morning. Some of you know this past weekend was our annual missions weekend. You know, we have, typically have a missions conference of some sort every fall, and that fell on this weekend. And we were pleased to have, I think you heard Jeff pray for him, um, two church planters from the Florida Church Plant Network. So if you're unfamiliar with the network in our denomination, um, specifically in Florida, there's something called the Florida Church Plant Network, which has as their mission planning churches in Florida. So we have two church planters from that network come and join us for the weekend, B.J. Milgate yesterday and Russell Jeffries on Friday. And the theme was centered around loving our neighbors and loving our neighborhoods. And so not only did they share with us how they, as church planners, are in the process of figuring out how to love their neighborhoods and how to love their neighbors, but they also gave us some uh, really good training in what it looks like for us to enter into the lives of our neighbors and our neighborhoods with the gospel. So with that said, when I was thinking about what to preach on Today, um, in light of the missions weekend, I thought, what better text than the Good Samaritan, where the very topic of what it means to be a neighbor is raised. So, uh, if you would turn with me, I am in Luke 10, 25 through 37. The text is, of course, printed in your bulletin, uh, in your Bibles, on your phones, whatever you use to orient yourself to the text. Um, You have all those different avenues, so there you go. But before we read the text, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this weekend that... um, Though in the many ways that you've challenged us, just thinking about our neighbors and thinking about our neighborhoods. And we thank you for the work of B.J. Milgate and Russell Jeffries, and we pray for their contexts. And as they even today gather for worship um, and try to love their neighbors and their neighborhoods well through corporate worship. And Father, we ask today that as we encounter your text, your scripture this morning, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would open our ears Open our minds and hearts to receive your word, uh, to receive the preach word as well, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, and that you would also encourage us through the text. Uh, We ask all of this knowing that God the Holy Spirit, it is by you and your hand that we can even understand the scriptures. So we bring all this before you, praying in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, follow along with me as I read Luke 10, 25 through 37. I'll be reading out of the ESV version, which is the one printed in your bulletin. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, I want to begin this morning by confessing something of a sort that you probably don't know about me. And Lori uh, and a few others do know this about me, but uh, I'll just say it. I am an awful cook. Now, I can make some pretty killer sandwiches, and I'm pretty adept at flipping pancakes if I'm so called upon to do so. But besides those few items and maybe a few select others, I am embarrassingly woeful in my culinary abilities. I can follow a recipe, although Lori and a few others might contest that assertion. But the problem, the problem with recipes, you see, is if something doesn't happen according to plan, according to the way the recipe says it should happen, or as more often is the case, I mess something up in the recipe, I'm hopeless to adjust on the fly, and might as well just go out and get carry out or call in reinforcements from some other avenue. Case in point, when I was in college, I, um, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, me and a friend decided we were going to enter a chili cook-off, and I had never cooked chili before, but you know, I found what I thought was a really good recipe, and so I sat down, looked over the recipe, and, and prepared my chili to go. But the recipe, it called, to make, it called for me to make chili and cornbread, but it never said that the chili and the cornbread should be separate. So what did I do? When the cornbread came out of the oven, I threw it in with the chili and mixed it all, mixed it all up. Well, as you can imagine, I didn't win the chili cook-off. <laughs> So to sum up my culinary abilities, the problem is for me, there's no room for mystery or adventure in cooking. And when I'm forced to enter the chaos of the kitchen, it's very often not a pretty sight. So, by the way, I didn't cook the the dinner last night. That's why we catered last night if you were here for the fellowship dinner. Now, while this is just one silly illustration, on a more serious note, I wonder if this paralyzing need for a recipe, something that I'm suspect to, also invades the way that we relate with people. In his book, The Silence of Adam, Dr. Larry Crabb bemoans the tendency, and he's speaking specifically to men in this book, The Silence of Adam, but I think it applies really across the board. He bemoans the tendency of what he coins recipe theology. In short, recipe theology, I think it's something that we'll find we all buy into from time to time. Recipe theology takes a biblical principle or a biblical truth and it turns it into a recipe for success. So take, for example, the problem of anger. Larry Crabb writes this about recipe theology. Recipe theology would say this, are you angry? Can't get close to your mate or resolve tensions with friends? Well, here's God's prescription for getting rid of your anger, resolving tension, and building intimacy. And this medicine, he says, will always work. You see, recipe theology takes something that's true biblically. It doesn't deny that there are biblical principles or biblical truths for a whole host of different real-life situations we might find ourselves. But the problem is recipe theology then divorces what's true biblically from the context and chaos of the messiness of real life. And as a result, recipe theology essentially turns people into projects to manage rather than flesh and blood people to love. I can remember 
you know, several years ago when I was first entering vocational ministry, before I came over to Spruce Creek, I was working for an organization called Campus Outreach. And I remember a month into my employment with Campus Outreach, I had a lunch appointment with my, with my boss and we sat down and he was just asking me to reflect a little bit on what my first month was like, you know, what were some of the joys, the challenges, and so forth. And I recall telling him that my biggest surprise and even my biggest difficulty was that there was no guarantee that the time and investment I was making each and every day would generate an equal return. In other words, there was no neatly packaged recipe for success in entering into the messiness and the chaos of somebody else's life. Well, how does this relate to our text this morning? Well, in a similar way, similar to our desire for recipes and how we relate with one another, this lawyer who were introduced to at the outset of this passage, was looking for a kind of recipe in how to love his neighbor. As we'll see in a moment, this lawyer, he was looking for not only a neat definition of who to love, he probably also had a neatly packaged approach for how to love too. So let's begin by first looking just at this back and forth dialogue initially between this lawyer and Jesus, looking at your text. So first, we meet this lawyer who Luke Luke tells us stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, a lawyer, this isn't the, uh, he's not representing Morgan and Morgan here. A lawyer would have been somebody in first century Israel who's an expert in the law, simply put. It's synonymous with a scribe, a religious leader, a scribe, somebody who knew the Jewish law and knew the Jewish law very well. So this lawyer, he approaches Jesus, and the text tells us pretty explicitly that he approaches Jesus with malicious intent, as the religious leaders often do throughout the Gospels. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these other religious groups often approach Jesus with malicious intent, trying to test him, trying to trap him in some way. And the same is happening here with this lawyer. Now, it's possible that this lawyer, somebody who knew and prized the law, was already quite familiar with some of the things Jesus had already done in his ministry that he might have interpreted as undermining the law. So, for instance, earlier in Luke's gospel, we read this account of Jesus and his disciples going about the fields picking grain on the Sabbath. And remember, they're confronted about that. Why are you working on the Sabbath right now? You're not supposed to be doing that. So perhaps this lawyer has this, these type of events in the back of his mind as these little subtle things he might have interpreted as Jesus doing as undermining the law. And so he approaches Jesus in that context. He stands up with the intent of having Jesus further incriminate himself. Well, then second, the lawyer proceeds by asking his first question, which despite his motives and appearances, it's actually a reasonable enough question. The lawyer asks, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or perhaps another way that this question could be paraphrased is, how does one enter the kingdom of God? How does one get saved? A very basic religious question. And again, keep in mind, the lawyer's motives lurking behind this. He's looking for something, anything, unorthodox in what Jesus has to say next. But instead, what does Jesus do? He drives this expert in the law back to the law. He says, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? Or how do you read it? Now, you can imagine this might have been a tad bit shocking for this expert in the law to hear. Not only did Jesus maybe not do what he thought Jesus was going to do, but he asked him such a simple question, given that he was an expert in the law. This might have been like a... uh, 
asking a meteorologist or a PhD in meteorology what the weather is by just looking up in the sky. Hey, Mr. PhD in meteorology, is it raining right now? You know, such a simple question to ask of somebody who's an expert in such a thing. But nevertheless, the lawyer responds by giving an appropriate summary of the law, right? It's a summary that we read about throughout all of the New Testament, a summary that's love God and love neighbor. It's a perfect summary of, you know, the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments, love God. The next six commandments, love neighbor. A perfect summary. And Jesus, ultimately, he approves of the answer that, the, that this uh, lawyer gives. Now, just a quick aside to this text. So, Bear with me for a second. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus, the law, so the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, obey the law. Jesus isn't advocating here a form of works righteousness. He's not saying to the lawyer, you can earn your way into the kingdom of God by just doing these things, by maybe following this recipe and you're good to go. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Salvation has always been through grace alone, by faith alone. And Jesus isn't undermining that at all here. But at the same time, we know and we confess in our Reformed tradition that, at the, at, that a living and breathing faith works itself out in love, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith, our, our confession that we have as the Presbyterian Church of America even says this. It says at one point, when it's talking about this grand doctrine of justification, The Westminster Confession of Faith says, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. And that's the issue here. What it looks like to be not just a hearer of the law, but actually a doer of the law. That's the issue at stake in our text. And this is a recurring emphasis throughout Luke. In Luke 8, for instance, after uh, Jesus gives the famous parable of the sower in Luke 8 to kind of conclude that narrative section, Jesus says, my mother and my brother are those who listen to the the word of God. They listen to God's word and they do it. And notably, this is in contrast with the Pharisees and lawyers who throughout Luke's gospel are the ones who hear. They know the law very well, but what do they fail to do? They fail to exercise justice for the poor and the needy and the outcast time and time again. That's the dynamic that we're dealt with. So then returning with that in mind, I think that's an important aside to remember. Jesus isn't advocating a works righteousness here. He's simply talking about a living and breathing faith has to work itself out in love. So with that in mind, let's return real quick to this dialogue between the lawyer and Jesus. After Jesus says this and, and affirms the lawyer's response of, uh, of what the law requires, um, the lawyer comes back at Jesus one final time with a question that really serves as the hinge to this entire narrative section. The text tells us this in uh, verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, this expert in the law has a neatly packaged recipe of who his neighbor is. He's desiring to justify himself in terms of his interpretation of the law, his preconceived notions of just who his neighbor is. You see, in concert with Jewish sediments of the day, 
this lawyer perhaps only felt the obligation to love those who were part of the covenant. Commentators note that for first century is a first century Israelite to speak of one's neighbor was to speak exclusively of those within the covenant community. And so the question on the lips of the lawyer is essentially this. It's who in the covenant community do I have to love? Where can I draw the line? Again, this lawyer was looking for a kind of recipe in terms of who he was required to love. He was looking for something very neat and very clean, something that didn't require a whole lot of sacrifice on his part, something that he maybe thought he could follow for God to give him two thumbs up. But Jesus, as we'll look at in the parable to follow, absolutely wrecks the prospect of a recipe. He wrecks the prospect of a recipe for who to love, and he wrecks the prospect of a recipe for how to love. And as Jesus goes even on to show by the end of this parable that we'll look at in a second, the lawyer was even asking the wrong question altogether. Whereas the lawyer wanted to know, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Who should I love? And so forth. Jesus' response by way of this parable challenges him to consider not who is my neighbor, but rather whose neighbor am I? In the same way, Jesus challenges this lawyer. I think he challenges us too. So what I want us to see as we continue to work through this text, specifically through this parable that follows, Jesus gives, is that Jesus challenges the ways we love. Or I think more often than not, he challenges the ways that we don't love. And he challenges that in two ways. First, he challenges who we love. And second, he challenges how we love. Who we love and how we love. So first, Jesus challenges, simply put, who we love. Many commentators note that when Jesus launches into this parable at the outset, there's a kind of expectation in the minds of the readers and in the minds of maybe the original hearers for what they would have expected. And yet, as we'll see in a second, what Jesus does in this parable and what he does time and time again in the Gospels is he surprises us, right? And I think N.T. Wright is so right on with that when he says that meeting Jesus always involves a surprise. When we really understand Jesus for what he's saying, we're going to be surprised. We're going to be shocked. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. So first, Jesus starts out by describing the action or rather the inaction of a priest. Starts out with a priest. Now, a priest was somebody who ministered in the temple precinct. So, you know, remember we talked about the temple I'm sure many times before, the temple was sort of that central place in religious life, but not only religious life, but also political and social life. It was the place to be. It was the ultimate place where Israelites believed that God dwelt among them, and it was the place they would go to be near to God. So a priest had sort of the ultimate, um, ultimate advantage by being able to not only worship, but also serve in the holiest of places in the temple. That's what a priest did. A priest served in the temple precincts. And so the picture here in, this par- in the parable at the outset is you have this priest who was in Jerusalem who just served, probably obeying that, those first four commandments, the first table of the law, to the letter. You know, all of those really meticulous requirements for how to offer up sacrifices and so forth. The priest, we have this picture of a priest who was probably doing all of those things, and he's on his way home to Jericho, where he probably lived, and he passes by this guy in the ditch, and what does he do? He ignores the entire second table of the law. 
after following the law to the letter by serving in the temple, he goes home and he just ignores the entire second table of the law. That's the picture here with this priest. Well, then Jesus moves on to tell us about the actions, or I guess rather inactions again, of a Levite. Now, if we think of uh, ancient Israel or first century Israelite hierarchy, a priest was like, that was, the, that was the thing to be, was a priest. But a Levite wasn't too bad either. We're maybe now one rung down on the ladder. A Levite was somebody who would also serve in the temple, but he was more or less like an assistant to the priest um, and would you know, help the priest out with his various duties. But the same thing happens again here. We have a Levite who, after obeying the law in the temple, goes back home and ignores the entire second table of the law. Now at this point, putting us in the minds of the readers and the original hearers of this parable, they might have thought they knew where Jesus was going at this point. Okay, it's not going to be the priest. It's not going to be the Levite who's the hero, so to speak. It's got to be the average Joe Israelite. That's who's going to be the hero here. That's who's going to come out on top. But again, meeting Jesus always involves a surprise, doesn't it? And he surprises us once again here by highlighting not the priest, not a Levite, not even an average Joe Israelite as the hero. He gives us a Samaritan as the hero. And I think to understand just how radical what Jesus is saying here, we have to know a little bit about Israel and Samaritan dealings in the first century. Again, we're dealing with completely different ethnicities here. And the Samaritans and the Jews, for a whole host of theological and historical reasons, simply put, they absolutely hated each other. And again, there's a whole history that's involved there that I'll spare you. But just a few points real quick. In about 150 years before Jesus gives this parable, uh, the, the Samaritans had a temple in Mount Gerizim. That's where they worshipped, at a different temple to the north. And there was a Jewish, uh, revolu- a Jewish revolutionary who came through, and he destroyed their temple. So step one in that sort of animosity between them. Flash forward to about 30 years before Jesus is giving this parable here in 4 or 5 A.D., And another event happened during the Passover, you know, the Jewish feast, that ultimate Jewish feast, Samaritans entered in the Jewish temple and they desecrated it with bones. They scattered bones throughout the Jewish temple to absolutely desecrate it. So two historical events, and that's just two historical events that sort of underscore the animosity between them. And then not only that, but the Jews they would have considered their, the entire, what we know as the Old Testament, to be their scriptures at the time. But the Samaritans, they only bought into the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we know as the Pentateuch. And they even had an edited version of the Pentateuch that kind of supported their theological positions in various ways. So we have this historical animosity, we have this religious animosity, and there's a slew of Jewish texts from the first century and a little bit before that are pretty graphic in how they underscore this animosity. Let me just read you from the book of Sirach. Sirach is an early Jewish text. At one, in one verse in the book of Sirach, this is from a Jewish perspective, the author writes this, Two nations my soul detests, and a third is not even a people, those who live in Seir and the Philistines and the foolish people that live in Shechem. In other words, the Samaritans. They're not even a people, according to this early Jewish text. And there was even a prayer in early Judaism that asked God, that invoked God, not to remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. 
So we have all of this sort of stuff brewing in the minds and hearts of first century, first century Israelite culture and religious life. And now Jesus comes in and gives us a Samaritan as a hero. That's pretty radical. And then just one chapter before this, even in Luke's gospel, what we find is that Jesus, on one day, he and his disciples try to enter a Samaritan village, right? And what does the Samaritan village do? They reject Jesus and the disciples. Even Jesus and his disciples aren't exempt from this religious animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And yet the parable the Good Samaritan calls upon Israel to love even those Samaritans. But the reason isn't merely because of altruism. It's not merely because, oh, it's just a nice thing to do to love these Samaritans, so let's just do it. The reason, ultimately, understanding the whole biblical theology of this, the reason Jesus tells us and tells the Jewish people to love the Samaritans is because of the new kingdom community Jesus has come to form. Quick point, in reading any text of scripture, and this is no different, it's wise to pay attention to the context that precedes that passage of scripture and the passage that comes after the passage of scripture we're reading. So let's do that for a second real quick. Just before this passage, Jesus has sent out these 72 disciples on mission, right? You can read about that in Luke 10.1 and following down. So he sends out these 72, commissions them to go out on mission, go bring the gospel out to wherever you're going. And then a few verses later, this 72 return. And they recount to Jesus all of the extraordinary things that have happened when they got sent out. And ultimately, what Luke is picturing here for us is a picture of the power of the kingdom of God. When the power of the kingdom of God invades into the world as it does in the ministry, life, death, resurrection, and so forth of Jesus Christ, radical things like what we read about in Luke 10 and following happen. Well, now in light of that passage on the unexpected, we might say the thrilling power of the kingdom Jesus brings, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus shocks us once again by not necessarily painting the power of the kingdom of God, but by painting this picture of the new kingdom community that the kingdom of God enjoins, a kingdom that involves Samaritans. You see, the radical thing about this kingdom community that Jesus has come to form is that he even even requires us to redefine our neighbors to include our enemies. Samaritan, like we've said, would have surely been counted as an enemy in the minds of many Jews. But because of the kingdom Jesus brings, even our enemies are considered our neighbors. And we're called to love them and to, to really love them as such. Many of you probably remember back in 1994, um, there was a, a mass genocide in the nation of Rwanda. If you remember that. I was only seven years old and I remember a little bit of that. Uh, well, after a whole, what happened was after a whole history of tension between the, uh, the ethnic, there are two ethnic groups in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis. The, the Hutus had been, even though they were the majority ethnic group, they had been, uh, we might say, persecuted, I guess, for lack of a better term, for, for centuries beforehand. And it sort of reached a flashpoint in the nation of Rwanda where the, the Hutu president at the time was assassinated. And so the Hutu majority turned on their Tutsi neighbors and this mass genocide um, sprung up. Um, it was a three-month-long genocide in which over 800,000 Rwandans were slaughtered. According to one report, the Hutu majority during the genocide 
they were encouraged all the, all the way by the government officials, by radio broadcasts and so forth, to murder their Tutsi neighbors. And they did. One report that I read on this recounted, quote, the most chilling fact about this genocide is that in most cases, neighbors were killing neighbors. The Hutus were not roaming about the countryside killing strangers with machetes. These were people slaughtering people they knew. But for all the bloodshed that took place between neighbors, one of the remarkable narratives that's come out of uh, the nation of Rwanda really in the last decade and maybe even before that has been the overwhelming amount of stories of reconciliation between neighbors. See, Rwandans have had to wrestle in profound ways over what it looks like to love their neighbors when it was their neighbors who were responsible for so much bloodshed, killing not only even family members and friends and people in their own families. As you can imagine, this has been an incredible challenge over the last decade or so, but one author specifically who I read who has documented the reconciliation process for one Rwandan woman named Joy in particular writes this about this woman, Joy. She writes, the more she had come to understand the significance of the Bible's teaching on Jesus Christ's death, the more forgiveness seemed possible. She learned how Christ had been executed in a horrible manner, more horrible than some of the things she had ever seen in the war. And she learned how he willingly died to pay the penalty for her wrongdoing and for anyone else who would give up their bad ways and look to him. If Christ could forgive her, if he could forgive the people who tortured him, then Joy knew she could forgive too. Now, hopefully, reading that account, that brief account, doesn't trivialize the unimaginable pain or struggle that reconciliation of this sort is. I can't imagine what the healing process looks for, for the looks like for the majority of the Rwandan people. But what this story does illustrate is a profound example of loving one's neighbor when your neighbor has been your enemy. And as we'll see shortly, the only way real reconciliation of this sort is possible is because of the gospel, because of how we have been loved so much more than we could ever hope or imagine by God in Jesus Christ. So real quick, what do we do with this in terms of the people that we're called to love? Well, whereas somebody like Frederick Nietzsche, for instance, would say it's perverse to love our enemies because it goes against nature, Jesus calls our enemies our neighbors, and then he challenges us to love even our enemies. But lest we see this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, as only a call to deal with this neighbor-enemy dynamic, it's also at the same time much more than that. It's also a call for us to consider the people that we're ambivalent towards. It's a call for us to step out of our shells, step out of our context, and actually seek the good of those we're indifferent towards or apathetic towards. It calls us, like the Samaritan did, to make the first move for the sake of others. As many note, this parable also has implications, deep implications for race relations. It calls us to open our eyes to a cultural system that's discriminated, that's encouraged discrimination along racial lines. It has implications, and if I may be so candid, at this season of uh, the year, it has implications for the ways we traverse political lines. So I'll ask Republicans, how well do you really love your Democrat neighbors? And Democrats, how well do you really love your Republican neighbors? 
This has implications for us to step out of whatever comfort zones insulate us from the people who are very different towards us. And again, I'll say, not just be congenial towards them, but to actually enter into their lives, the scariness and the messiness of their lives, and sacrifice for their sake. Especially calls us as Christians, if you indeed embrace the gospel in Jesus Christ as Lord, it calls us as Christians to enter into the lives of our non-Christian neighbors. Now, of course, for all of this, I would argue, and we'll talk about this specifically in the next point when we talk about what it looks like to love, how we love, but I would argue that the best way we do love our neighbor is by giving the gospel away, by giving the life-changing message of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But at the same time, that doesn't exclude acts of mercy as a huge part of what it looks like to love our neighbors. The point is that loving people who are very different from us, especially our enemies, is incredibly messy. There's no recipe for it. It requires us to saturate often our relationships, all of our relationships in prayer, and it even requires us to sit in a position of learning. You know, when we started out reading the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have this lawyer who initially, what is his posture? He's standing up. He's putting himself in a position of authority. And how arrogant it is to put himself in such a position of authority in front of the Lord. And in an analogous sense, the parable of the Good Samaritan calls us to sit down, to learn. Learn at the feet of Jesus, first and foremost, but also to listen and learn from our neighbors and our enemies, to learn where they're coming from, and so forth. Our posture should be one of learning, one of listening, and one of loving winsomely. Well, this leads to our second point. Second, Jesus challenges how we love. Look again with me, if you would, at the text. And specifically, I just want to drive our attention to all of the ways this Samaritan loves the man in the ditch. And the first thing, and I think this is, this isn't, this is no small matter, he actually stops, right? I mean, we have this priest and the Levite who, they do this sort of, I'm going to look but pretend I don't see this guy as I kind of go on my way. It's a significant thing that the Samaritan, he actually stops. Then, as the text tells us, The Samaritan had compassion on the man. And I love the Greek word used here. It's a Greek word, maybe you can say splongnitzomai. Splongnitzomai, there we go. And the Greek word there is really a very evocative word that conjures up the whole, the the bowels of of a person are being moved with pity and compassion for what's before him. This is the same word if you're familiar with the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that prodigal son comes home and what does the father do? The father sees him and the father has compassion and he runs to his son who's coming home that's the idea here the Samaritan looks at the man in the ditch and he felt something his whole person was moved by the travesty of what he saw before him then the Samaritan not only risked his safety by stopping to help I mean if you think about this if the Samaritan or if the man in the ditch had just been overtaken by uh, robbers or whatever exactly the text says here well then surely if the Samaritan's stopping well maybe his life could be in danger too if these enemies or these robbers are still kind of lurking around there but not only did this guy sacrifice his safety he also sacrificed his time he spent precious time binding the wounds of the man in the ditch he spent time taking the man on his own animal to take him to the inn. And then the Samaritan gave money 
for the sake of the man. He paid the innkeeper, and he further promised that if this man racks up any debt, I'll take care of it. And then finally, I think this goes along with it, the, the Samaritan implicitly gives emotional capital by promising that he'll be back. He's going to go about his day. He's going to go about whatever duty or whatever rhythms of life that he finds himself in. But that implies that he's not going to forget. He's going to still, as he goes about his life, he's still going to be wrapped up emotionally in what exactly this man in the ditch and how he's doing and what's going on. And he promises that he'll be back again. Friends, this is a vision that we're given here of what it looks like to be a neighbor. Now, I did say at the outset that we're not given a recipe for how to love our neighbor. And I don't want to present this as, well, this is our 10-step process to go through for how we love our neighbors and how we love our enemies. It's certainly not that. Each situation we find ourselves in, each person that we interact with, it's going to be different. But I do think that one thing we find in this text is a very replicable pattern present. And I think it's important to note this this replicable pattern that I'm going to talk about in a second is exemplified by Jesus throughout the Gospels. We'll see Jesus exemplify this pattern of love throughout the Gospels, and it's only because of how we've been loved in that sense that, the, that we can love in a similar sense, that the reason that's, that's only possible because of how we've first been loved in Jesus Christ. But let me continue for a second. Um, a guy named Paul Miller, who I'm indebted to, uh, if you ever heard of the Person of Jesus study, I'm sure, I think Jeff's done it at the church various times in the past. Person of Jesus study, it's by Paul Miller, a PCA guy, Paul Miller observes that in several different accounts in the Gospels, there's an observable pattern to just how Jesus loves. And the first step in the way Jesus loves is simply looking. Jesus often calls his disciples to look or to pay attention to somebody who's downcast or, or, or somebody who's beaten, somebody who needs love and who needs help. For instance, uh, a couple chapters earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee, and this sinner, this woman comes in, and Simon's just disgusted by this, what's in front of him, and Jesus tells Simon to look at her, to look at her and to pay attention to her. That's the first step in love. The first step is simply to look. But at the same time, we know it doesn't stop there, right? Because the priest and the Levite, they also looked, but they moved on. Well, the second step we find in in the ways Jesus loves is compassion. When we actually take time to look at the people in our lives in need, at our neighbors in need, we won't merely pass by on the other side. There's something that should drive us to compassion. When we take the time and we, and I might add, not, even, not only physically looking, but also listening, spending time with somebody, we'll very often encounter a need that should drive us to this type of compassion, the same type of compassion that the Samaritan felt when he looked the man in the ditch and he really considered what was going on here. And then finally, the third step is to help to step in and actually be an instrument, in the, an instrument of love to our neighbors. Now, though, like I said before, giving away the gospel must remain. That's the, that's the chief way that we can love people, is by giving away the incredible life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though that's central and chief, and I never want to say that that's something secondary, that always has to remain central. Nevertheless, 
loving people and stepping into their lives is going to look different depending upon the situations and the needs and our, even, our, even our abilities for how to love somebody. It's going to look different. There's no recipe for it. But just because there's no recipe for it, just because there's no recipe for helping, this can't be an excuse to look the other way and to pass by on the other side. These three steps of love call us to enter into the messiness and the brokenness and the absolute complexity of what it means to love our neighbors. But friends, the reason that we are called, the reason that we're freed to love in this way is because we have also been loved so much more than we could ever imagine in Jesus Christ. You know, one of my favorite passages in scripture, I feel like I say that a lot, but one of my favorite passages in scripture is Philippians 2. And in that passage, I'll just briefly paraphrase it. The Apostle Paul, who's writing that, he first, he calls the church in Philippi to look first to the interest of others. He might, we might say, in essence, Paul is calling the church in Philippi to love like a Samaritan, to, to look, at, look like the Samaritan looked at somebody else, simply put. And then he roots this pattern, this call to love in Jesus Christ's unique self-giving work in the incarnation and on the cross. Simply put, the mercies of God. The mercies of God, and if we could go back through even Luke's gospel and see at the outset of Luke's gospel where we have Mary's Magnificat, this beautiful hymn, and Zacharias Benedictus, one thing they're constantly celebrating are the mercies of God. The mercies of God who looked on us in our depravity and in our sin, and he entered into the messiness and complexity of life. Simply put, the mercies of God in Christ free us to love. There's a story that uh, Tim Keller, I know you thought Jeff's not in the pulpit, we're not going to get any Tim Keller. Yep, I've got a little bit of Tim Keller for you. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, uh, he says something that I find so appropriate at this point. Keller, he talks about at one point uh, meeting a woman who came to his church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And this woman tells Keller that she had grown up her whole life always hearing that for God to accept her, she had to be sufficiently good and ethical. But now, according to Keller, fortunately, she was hearing for the first time how in Christ we can be accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Christ. And to this new message of grace that she was now hearing, Keller tells us how she responded. And I just want to read you her response real quick. I think it's really good. She, said, she says, that's a scary idea. Oh, it's a good scary, but it's still scary. You see, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner, saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing that he cannot ask of me. Friends, because of how we've been loved in Christ, we're called to enter the messiness of loving our neighbors and even loving our enemies. Christ calls us in this passage to first of all open our eyes to those in our midst because God in Christ has opened his eyes, so to speak, to us. And let me pause real quick for an aside. Do you know the mercies of God in Christ? Do you know the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
That's the first place to start. That's what all of what I'm talking about today is rooted in, is how we have been loved first and foremost in Christ. Loving our neighbor has to be rooted in that reality, namely that we've been loved and shown abundant mercy. So with that said, who do you need to open your eyes towards? Maybe it's your geographical neighbor who you've never met, you don't really know too well, but you see a need there. Maybe it's somebody frankly, that you just don't like. And let's face it, we all have people like that in our lives. And how is God calling even our church, Spruce Creek Presbyterian Church, to love the many diverse people of Volusia County, to identify even what those needs are that are being neglected in our county and to enter in and to love? Well, however we answer these questions, again, there's no recipe for it. Do you at least have your eyes open Are you willing to have your eyes open in the absence of a recipe? And are you willing to enter into the darkness, the complexity, and the mess of real life to be a neighbor to those who desperately need a neighbor? Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you for how you have loved us more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever maybe even grasp in Jesus Christ. And we ask that with that said, that we would first of all reflect every day on what the gospel is and why the gospel is such good news. And then out of that reality, would you in fact challenge us? Challenge us in how we don't love well. Challenge us to enter into the lives of those who desperately need love. Would you challenge us in that way? Challenge not only us individually, but challenge us as a church Give us people in our church body who can come alongside us, maybe even transform our community groups to be communities that are on mission, loving our neighbors and loving them well. We ask that you would do all of this, that you would challenge us in this way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.